Hi friends, thank you for tuning in to the Concussion Coach Podcast. I'm Bethany Lewis, the Concussion Coach. I'm a neurological occupational therapist and certified life coach, and I specialize in guiding people through their concussion recovery journey. I am passionate about helping people understand their injury, speed up their recovery, and reclaim control over their life post-concussion. The purpose of this podcast is to help increase awareness of concussions and the impact they can have on a person's life, and to bring hope to people who have suffered a concussion and those who love them. I firmly believe that sharing stories and knowledge about concussions will bring important light and understanding to this misunderstood and often invisible injury. The information in this podcast is meant to bring that awareness and hope and is not meant as medical advice. The opinions shared are those of the interviewees and my own. If you are suffering with lingering concussion symptoms, I have created a concussion coaching program specifically for you. I will be your mentor to guide you through your recovery journey, offering help with understanding and managing your symptoms, setting achievable goals, and learning how to manage your own thoughts and nervous system in order to get control over your life again. If this program sounds like something that would help you or someone you love, sign up for a free consultation. In the consultation, you'll get valuable information and resources and gain hope for your future. Sign up for your free consultation at the link in the show notes or at my website, www.theconcussioncoach.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Concussion Coach Podcast. A few weeks ago, I did an interview with my friend and colleague, Keith Lorzell, and he shared some information on a device that he created that he named Tomar, which has helped people who have experienced auditory issues following a concussion or COVID. In that episode, we talked about our mutual friend and colleague, Nate Benson, who has taken this device and has discovered new ways that it can be helpful for people and that I should bring on Nate to discuss the work that he's done with patients using this machine. So today is the day that we get to have that conversation. You may remember Nate from our interview that I posted back in May, in which he shared his experience with a brain injury, which he acquired from carbon monoxide poisoning. He's got a super interesting story, and you should go listen to it if you haven't heard it yet. It's episode number 17 of this podcast. And for now, just suffice it to say that Nate has been with Cognitive FX for five years and has a wealth of knowledge and experience in working with people with concussions, and now specifically in using Tomar to help with auditory and other issues that people experience. So I'm really excited for this conversation. I am somewhat familiar with this device, but I don't know all of the background or how exactly it works. And so I'm really excited to pick Nate's brain on this and we'll be learning along with all of you listeners here. So let's just jump right in. Welcome, Nate. And what do you want to tell us about Tomar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, it's a, it's a really novel thing. It's when you look at it, you're kind of like, what is that? Uh, when patients come into cognitive effects where I've been working, patients look at it and they kind of like tilt their head. They're like, so what is that for? Because it's just so novel. It's so different. But the basic layout of this machine, just to kind of give our listeners an idea of what we're trying to describe, think of it as kind of like this half dome board up on the wall. So it's like, I don't know how to describe it other than like a satellite, but it's cut out with slits. So you don't feel so claustrophobic. And inside of this dome, we've got speakers laid out in three different rows with columns along the way. So you're getting, and their speakers paired with lights and buttons. So long story sh short and kind of how to visually get this idea is that you're seeing these gray circles with a button and a little light and those speakers will play sound and you can press a button to interact with it and the light can be a way to help indicate which speaker's playing. And it's around kind of the forward facing view that you have with the speaker. So that's a, that's kind of like the visual layout. And the main thing that we have intended it to be was to help the patients know where sound was coming from. 
but we're finding that there's actually more application in that. Excellent. Okay. So why don't you tell us what does Tomar stand for? And yeah, what is it? Like, well, you told us what it, what it looks like visually, but yeah, what is it? What does it stand for? Okay. So Tomar stands for Tonotopic Map Regenerator. Um, If you like break down for those people that are into like what words mean, things like that, Tonotopic map is if you look at it specifically it's your brain's ability to depict to detect what pitch of sound you're hearing and technically we're doing a little bit more of like knowing where stuff is but we actually with training we realize that we can actually do a little bit of that actual tonotopic training knowing and identifying specific pitches of sound so like really high pitched like those squeaks or the low tones and like a bass right and what were what the original idea behind this device i believe he explained it pretty well in the podcasts with him but it's there's in brain injury or post-concussion syndrome is commonly called patients are dealing with a, a lot of different symptoms one of the most annoying and most debilitating in my opinion is noise sensitivity mm-hmm. meaning any sort of sound your brain is just overwhelmed by it it dislikes it it could view it as a threat. And so it's going to try and invent ways to get you to get away from that sound, to turn down the sound in any way it can possible so that it reduces that overwhelm, right? And so one of the, th- the reasons why the brain feels so threatened or so overwhelmed by sound was that we didn't know where it was coming from. And so that's why we have this board that is laid out kind of like in this half dome with speakers everywhere in specific places is that we can actually use that to train patients to help relearn specifically where sound is coming from. And that would, in theory, potentially reduce that threat signal. And that's really important because that that decreased threat signal will help decrease that that pain and the sensitivity. Like if there's a threat, the brain just turns everything onto more high alert and everything is more painful, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that I can't think segues into an important point to talk about is why does the brain get so overwhelmed with noise or with light? So we're going to kind of go a more big picture on just what's happening in the brain with brain injury often mm-hmm. is that when something is off, like let's say your eyes aren't working together very well. Most people think of in terms of just like, oh, I'm going to just look at this Snellen chart, which is you see a, di- a doctor's office and they say, oh, I've got 20-20 vision. I'm fine. Well, most people are u- doing more than just looking at something 20 feet away, right? We're always looking around and your eyes have to work together in very specific ways. Like if you're looking at something close, your eyes actually have to move together at the same point to look at something close, but at far away, your eyes have to actually separate. So they're not like this perfect, like two bars always moving around at the same parallel line. They're dynamically moving around. And with a brain injury, those can start to get messed up. There's a lot more going on. But if your eyes aren't working well, your brain's going to protest you using your eyes too much because your brain has to make up for that really weird signal. And so it's doing all this extra work. And if it's happening all the time, your brain's going to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Let's try and stop doing this or slow it down. And so a way it'll do that is such as like, oh, I'm going to start to get a headache in my forehead and around my eyes. Or in my case, when I'm like reading, I'll start to hold my breath because it helps me focus a little better. But then now my brain's not getting that much oxygen. 
And so the idea is that that can happen in a whole bunch of different ways where when your brain is not getting good signals from your organs, such as your eyes, your ears, your balance system, often known as a vestibular system, I'll be talking about that later, and even your proprioception. So like if your eyes are closed, where is my arm in space right now? Do I know exactly where that is? All those systems, if they're not saying good things to your brain, your brain's going to try and get you to slow down or get you to stop. And then one of the most effective ways is pain or symptoms related to pain like headaches or nausea or even like a little bit of anxiety, right? And so going back to the whole noise sensitivity thing, noise sensitivity is one of those big factors in that our brain is just like, I can't trust this auditory information I'm being given. Let's dial it down because I just am getting overwhelmed. This is too much work for me. And I need to conserve my energy so I can get through this day. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I love that. That's a really good description of it. And it reminded me of, I listened to a podcast recently with Dr. Cobb, who Eric Cobb, he's the inventor, like he does the Z health courses, um, which we use and are it's amazing <laughs> the stuff that that he does that is able to be done through his work but um, yeah. he talked about pain the one of the current theories of pain is that it's a behavior change mechanism like it's the mm-hmm. way that the brain uses to indicate that it doesn't like what's going on and it needs to <laughs> we want to change something and so exactly that's exactly what you're saying like if we're having that threat right response if we're if the brain is feeling unsafe because it doesn't know where sounds are coming from or the visual simu- simulation is too much and overwhelming, then it will it will provide opportunities for us to <laughs> change our behavior by showing us pain. And it's super, super interesting. Anyway, keep going. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of those things is like, again, like to the brain, one thing I actually have took one of his courses and it's incredible. And one of the things that they talk about is the main role of the brain is survival that's its main purpose it's to help you survive right and if something like using your eyes too much or these sounds are dangerous your brain needs to find a way to get away from that or to survive it right and so whether that's a behavior change like covering your ears wearing noise uh, canceling headphones or earplugs or just avoiding noisy scenarios altogether that's a way of your brain trying to survive in these scenarios where it knows it's not safe or there's something wrong about it and it can't really identify why. And so that's where um, the Tomar device would, would come in is to potentially address some of those underlying issues and not only be able to help you know where sound is coming from again, but then actually get it to say the same thing that your eyes or what your proprioception or your balance system is saying. Like, okay, I hear a sound. I need to turn my head as I'm turning my head, my brain should know where exactly my head is and how much it's moving, where should my eyes be. All these things need to be saying the same thing also, as well as being accurate, so your brain can be more confident and more safe as what as it's doing these things all the time every day. Right. Oh, that's super interesting. And so this machine, like practicing it in this setting helps with all of those systems, not just the identifying where sounds are coming from? Yeah, the main goal is going to be the sound, but it naturally will hit those other things as well. Yeah, so it's very much like a multi-sensory approach. People think multitasking when I say that. It's not multitasking, though it kind of, it could, you could justify that. But multi-sensory in the fact that I'm using my eyes, I'm using my balance, I'm using my proprioception and my hearing all together. That's where all those senses are coming together into this one moment. 
Mm, excellent. So how does it work exactly? Like, what do you do? If somebody's standing in front of this machine that you described, then what? <laughs> right. So when it comes to the training, the big thing is first identifying kind of where the patient is at a baseline. And one thing that was really fascinating, one of my colleagues, she uh, was really big part in helping me develop the protocols and the therapy for this. Her name is Morgan. She's incredible. Morgan Jensen, she had this idea and it makes complete sense. But with um, knowing how the brain's responding, we need to test. We need a baseline to see, okay, how they are before they worked with the device. Then we'll have them work with it and then retest them after on this baseline to see if it's like, oh, I like that. Or wow, please stop. Don't do this anymore. Because if you overtrain it, the brain's going to just resist the training. So it's a really delicate approach here. And the auditory or the auditory information and the vestibular information, in other words, hearing and balance information go along the same cranial nerve, cranial nerve eight, the vestibular cochlear nerve. And so what we'll actually do is we do a little bit of balance testing where we'll have them like put their feet side by side or kind of in a line, like one foot in front of the other. And once they're kind of stable, they'll we'll have them close their eyes and see what happens to their balance. And we want just the right amount of challenge to where like they're wobbling a little bit, but they're not immediately like falling over. And so like feet side by side is the easiest. And then you can like progressively move one foot in front of the other or even lift your foot. But what we'll see is that a patient will kind of have kind of a baseline where they can hold their balance for around like 10 seconds, perhaps. Then we'll do a drill or two with Tomar where we actually have them practice seeing where the light is to that indicates which speaker is playing. And they try to pick up on if they can hear where it is just as much as where they can see where it is. Then they'll go through all 14 speakers on the board as a warm up. And then we test them with their eyes closed, but in a more safe balanced stance. And then after a little bit of that testing, we're getting a gauge on how good they are at finding where sounds are. But then we again, will retest after and see what happens to their balance. So what will happen is that after a little bit of that testing, we know two things. One, do they know where sounds are coming from? And then two, how did their brain like doing that skill like did it like it's like the idea of like did you like going on that run or did you absolutely hate it right if you only have to run for like 60 seconds at like a slow trot versus like running a 5k at race pace you're just like your brain will respond differently it'll either love it or it'll hate it and in this case some people it's really interesting sometimes their balance will get worse because it feels threatened by that training or it'll be about the same. And then in some rare cases, I'm, I'll actually be surprised. And some people, their balance gets better. Oh, that <laughs> is like, ah, oh, I liked this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, I was going to ask you, do they, I mean, it's funny to be testing the balance. Like, can't they tell you if they like it or not? Like, does, or does the balance need to be tested to figure out if the brain likes it? Both, both. Yeah. No, I mean, one thing that we'll also see is like patients will kind of go into what's called this uh, startle response where their shoulders go up, their chest, kind of almost like a fetal position, so to speak, mm -hmm. on the top part of your body. We're like almost curling up and you're holding your breath and you're getting tight. And then the legs actually spread out and get really strong base mm -hmm. because that's a really safe stance to be in. And usually it's really subtle things like their shoulders raise up a little or they'll start to hold their breath or hunch over. And during that time, you can kind of see their body's getting tight or they're starting to kind of like it takes them longer to figure out where the sound is. 
but over time you can they'll even report symptoms like oh i feel a little nauseous or i feel a little dizzy after doing that or even a slight increase in a headache and those are all little signs as well just as much as the balance so we use all that information do they realize it i just have seen it so many times and i think in myself too like some a lot of times people don't realize when their body is responding in that way it's just so natural like they don't think about it yeah it takes so much practice to be able to like especially with a brain injury most of the time people are dealing with these threat signals so to speak is what i like to call them but just like these signals that your brain's trying to tell you hey something's off i need a break here but if you have it all the time and it's interfering with your ability to do really important things you just learn to ignore those threat signals until they're really loud right the brain's like okay let me just smack you across the face since you're not listening to me so mm-hmm. here's a really bad headache or here's some really intense nausea or let's make this a very scary scenario. But yeah, with therapy and with a professional or somebody that's really experienced with this kind of training, they can help you learn to identify those things, even when they're like really subtle and really early on. Mm. Okay. So you're watching for those as people are doing the Tomar exercises. Um, yes. There's a lot of th- little things we watch for as they're getting started with it. And so will you just kind of know how long or hard to push based on that? Like you kind of yeah, so like they're, we give them like a Tomar evaluation score. So like at the initial, uh, they'll do like a two minute test where they'll get each speaker at least twice and they're pointing to where they think it is, depending on how accurate they are. And if they get symptomatic, that might indicate that I need to do a much lighter session. So I might only give them like a one minute training exercise and that's it. And then I'll retest them. Or some people, they like did fairly well or that didn't give them any symptoms at all. And so I'll do like two or three exercises where I like do some really deliberate work. And Mm. so it all depends on how sensitive and how willing the brain is to do it that day. That's really cool. Yeah. Very individualized treatment. That's awesome. When you're describing what happens, I was just curious, do the lights, you're saying they were trying to identify, you know, where the sound is coming from and the, the light is a visual cue to know where it's coming from. Do the lights go on at the same time as the sound or do you hear the sound first and try to identify it and then the light comes on? How does that work? That's great. Well, we're jumping right into the protocols pretty much. But like oh, the idea sorry. is that uh, without going like into to too much, without giving away too much sweet sauce, what the, the basics is that we start with a test with their eyes are closed and they're pointing. And then that helps me identify which areas are the hardest. So like there'll be some people where they have a confusion between top versus bottom sounds. Like when they get a sound on the bottom row, which is below ear level, they'll actually point up above and vice versa. And a less common error is that they'll confuse left and right. So like they'll hear a speaker on the right and they'll point slightly left of it or slightly right of it. I mean, when you think about it, our ears are on the left and right sides of our head right? So naturally, you would hope everybody would be a little better at that. But and then top and bottom, it takes a little extra work, our brain technically should be able to do that. But it's not as good with left and right. And so when it comes to the training part, depending on what's going on, I'll actually start with their eyes open, working on those areas that are troublesome and the light and speaker are there together. And then I'll progress them up to training where their eyes are closed, they point to where they think it is, and they open and if they're off, that gives their brain a really big, like, almost like a slap to the face, like, wow, I was so confident I had that right. And it's not. And those little signals of like, wow, that was bad. That's when the brain actually decides to fix or rewrite its auditory map of the world around you. 
Very cool. So, and what else do you want to tell us about it? Background or like how the brain is working or anything else that, that you yeah. want to make sure we discuss before we jump too far ahead? Yeah. So one important point that I think it'd be good to explain to listeners is just like the basics of noise and why some people are noise sensitive and why other people are not. Dr. Allen, which I believe you did a podcast with him just recently, yeah. um, he yeah. gives this uh, analogy or example that I think is really a good way to explain how we process sound in a healthy brain and then there's i can explain a little bit what happens in a brain that's been injured is that there's this idea that we are only hearing one thing at a time it's technically not true our brain's listening to everything around us and all that gets sent to our subconscious subconscious processing and your brain will decide to send the important information to your conscious brain right so that smarter thinking brain I would term it as like your sense of self, right? And and that's like the example of like when you're in a room or at a party and you're talking to somebody and suddenly you hear your name and you know exactly who was saying it and like you can almost sometimes remember what they were saying, right? You just immediately tune in. It's because your brain's always listening to everything, but the moment something becomes relevant or important, such as your name, your name is a very important thing to your brain, then boom, your attention and your conscious is aware of that. And so what happens in brain injury, in particular with noise sensitivity, is that if your brain doesn't know where a sound is coming from, or if it's dangerous in any way, then boom, it's in your conscious. And sometimes it'll even get amplified in a way to like your brain's trying to like amplify it so much that it can help you localize. But more than anything, it probably will just be overwhelming. Mm. And then when you have too many sounds in a room and you have no idea where it's all coming from, you have the whole room in your conscious brain and that is just going to be scary or overwhelming, right? So the best thing is to split, right? You want to get out of there. It's like, I can't deal with this right now. And so that's part of why some people with noise sensitivity, they just get overwhelmed is that there's just too much going on in your head and you just need to calm things down. Yeah, that is super, super interesting, the way that our brains work. And I think helpful for people who may not understand why why the sound sensitivity is, is coming up. And it can be debilitating. It can be completely, yeah, make it so that people can't function the way they normally do. It's, it's Oh, yeah, big, totally. Yeah. So did you want to talk about some of more of the anatomy piece of it and how how the brain localizes sounds or have you already discussed that? I can go into a little bit of that. So if I say some terms that are just kind of going over your head, I'll try to explain the basics as I go through it, um, like for listeners and things like that. But long story short, depending on the frequency of the sound or high pitch versus low pitch, our brain will actually use different strategies to know where the sound is coming from. And when it comes to low pitches, when it comes to the frequency of that, it's there's like gaps between hearing the sound, right? So like if you see waves, those big waves, there's big gaps between them, that's a low frequency. And so what your brain can actually do with low frequency is that the time difference between your left ear and right ear can tell you a lot about where that sound is. Mm. Wherever it hits your ear first, your brain knows that's where, that ear is closer to where that sound is. And so as you turn your head and you kind of move around, you can start to pick up on, okay, where am I getting the information first? And then that will orient you to where that sound is. And then when it comes to high pitch sound, it actually uses an intensity difference. Intensity being which one's louder. 
Mm-hmm. And so is it louder in my left or right? So when you get those really high pitched sounds, those little waves are so close together that your, your brain doesn't really know the difference on which ear is getting hit first. It goes off of which one's louder. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'll even notice when with the Tomar training, we have different pitches or frequencies of bells. Some are high, some are medium, some are low. And some people are actually really good at the middle and low ones, but they can't find the high ones. And then there are other people, they can't find the low ones. And so that can be a little revealing about what kind of training they would need. And those are upgrades I've asked Heath to do, but he's too busy taking on the world. But maybe one day I can get those added in. (laughs) But yeah, that's a little bit of the basics of localization. And then I'm sorry, I kind of took that all out of order in terms of some of the explanations. But that's a nice little nugget of how our brain knows where sound is coming from. In terms of the anatomy, it's going through the ear and then there's like the inner ear where there's like tiny little bones in your inner ear, which actually transmit that sound to your cochlea. That's kind of what your hearing and vestibular balance organ is. A lot of that information gets processed there. Once that information, like there's so much complexity that goes into that. I mean, like the science behind uh, hearing implants and cochlear devices is just bonkers to me. But once that information kind of gets processed there, it gets sent to your brainstem. And that's a lot of like people talk about the reptilian brain. That's what the brainstem is like heart rate, breathing regulation, temperature regulation, like the list goes on. But hearing information gets processed there a little bit too, where the left side and the right side are comparing notes. And that's where like when you're getting that time difference or that intensity difference, there's actual cells in anatomy that are comparing notes with each other. Like, okay, I got this at this time. When did you get it at this time? And that helps as the brain kind of go, okay, so there's more going on on the left side this time, or it's a little stronger on the left. That information gets sent up to uh, the inferior colliculus, which is kind of like a basic processor of noise, which is conveniently right next to the superior colliculus, which is where your eye, some of your basic eye movement information is too. Mm -hmm. So that can explain why when you hear something, you immediately look to where it is. It's because that information is like right next to each other in the brain. Then it gets sent up to your thalamus. Thalamus is like all all those nerves and things that are going up through your spinal cord. They actually, most of them hit the thalamus and your thalamus determines where in the brain the rest of that goes. And the thalamus is actually a big part of what's helping you keeping and stay asleep and go through your REM cycle. And so people often, when they don't have a strong and healthy thalamus, they'll actually wake up easily at night due to noise. And so like, even with babies, like I have two kids, one thing that is actually really good advice as a parent was don't keep the house quiet. Let the kids get used to noise so that things like their thalamus can be really good and strong and tune all that out so they can stay asleep. And so that's why some kids are like, they immediately wake up at any little tiny little creek in the floor versus some kids can just like sleep right in the middle of like a busy park, right? Yep. My youngest of six kids can sleep through just about anything. (laughs) (laughs) All quiet at night. (laughs) Yeah. So there's that. So we're at the thalamus now. And then from the thalamus, it goes to the auditory cortex, which is the temporal lobe. So like And it's conveniently right by your ears in terms of you're trying to figure out where in the brain that is. And if you have any symptoms, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the sides of your head, but um, that's where that information is being processed. And there's like all sorts of things that your brain can do with just these signals coming right from your ear. It's amazing. It's 
way too much for, I think, this podcast. But the idea is that your brain can go into information of, okay, where is the sound? What is the frequency or the pitch? Is there any meaning to it? If so, let's send it to another part of the brain where we can start to put together words or music and pick up on tone because language is all about how we say it just as much as what we say. And it just goes on and on. It's just, it's amazing. It is amazing. It's absolutely miraculous. <laughs> things that these things do. I'm curious if somebody has, is like deaf in one ear or hard of hearing in one ear, that would, I imagine significantly impact their ability to do this. That's a great question. Yeah. I've talked to patients. I've even met somebody before that either like they had a surgery in one ear and it was temporarily like blocked off or they actually were deaf in one ear. When it comes to sound, they will always turn their head towards the ear that can hear. So even if there's a sound on, like, like let's say their left ear is deaf and they get a sound on the left ear, they'll actually turn towards the right initially or they just be through behavior, they learn to just look around because they don't know where that sound is. Mm -hmm. So yes, you technically need both ears to identify where a sound is. Yeah, to localize sound. I know my my sweet mama has, is deaf in one ear now, and she said that being in crowded rooms is extremely challenging. And if there's a lot of background noise, she can't identify where things are coming from. It's it's hard. So so Tomar is going to be really helpful for people as long as they've got two functional ears. It sounds like. Yeah, as far as I understand, yes. Yeah, I haven't worked with too many people with one ear or another. Now, that being said, if you even have like, let's say you have like 20% hearing in one ear and like 100% in the other, in my opinion, you can still train that. The brain will just learn that though it's not getting a lot of signal from that ear, it'll just learn how to read those signals and interpret based off of the signals it's getting from your ears. So as long as you have a little bit of something, I think there's still some opportunity there. Mm -hmm. But if you're like completely deaf, in my limited experience, I don't know what you can do for that so far. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think you're probably right. The brain has an amazing way of adapting. So if there is something there, then it's probably enough to work with. Yeah. Um, super, super interesting. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. What else What else should we know about Tomar? So the, the big thing that we focus on right now is knowing where sound is coming from. That's kind of what we've been talking most of this time about. But there's this other component where you can actually work on just noise overwhelm in general. There's some patients I've met where just hearing sound at all is just like it's their body panics. Like you can just see them just kind of seize up and they're just like, oh, my gosh, like headache, nausea, just anything. Just get away from this. Stop. <laughs> and we can actually use this as a way to build up their tolerance to just noise in general. It's almost like exposure therapy to noise, in my opinion. It's a new idea that we've been playing around with, but we've seen some success where um, we would just do some basic bell sounds and it'd play and move around for about 30 seconds. And I had some patients where they would almost just fall to the ground. Like their brain would just say like, absolutely not. And my theory is, is that the information coming in from that nerve that has the, the auditory and balance information, the brain just kind of ignored it. And so now it no longer knows how to balance it. So they just kind of fall over but through this progressive exposure to the sound, like, okay, let's do 30 seconds and then turn everything off. Okay, balance is okay. They're feeling all right. After a few minutes, okay, let's do it again. And then I had some people after a week or two where they could tolerate, like, just as much as anybody else when it came to noise and their balance wasn't, like, dropping or anything like that. So there is, like, a, and just in terms of localization, there's also just an inherent 
fear to any volume of noise at all. And that can be used, Tomar can be used to address that as well. That is so, so cool. And I, yeah, that exposure, like very graded and intentional, slowly building up is really important. And I think, I don't know, as you were saying that, just the point when you're taking that break, the point is to reestablish safety, to let the brain know, okay, you experienced that and look, you're okay. Like we're going to breathe. We're going to help our system calm down and then we're going to do it again. Like, I think that's, that's really important and an excellent point. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that point. That's really important. Yeah. Anything you do in terms of training, definitely make sure you can get back to a safe place. If you can keep it controlled and secure, that's what will make training the most effective. Yes. Yeah. That's, something underlying with the nervous system again as we were saying before it's the whole point is to keep us alive and it's yeah constantly scanning for safety and danger cues and so if we can keep reminding it and showing it that it is it is safe and like legitimately actually safe then it's it'll allow itself to be manipulated there and like changed so that's that's right well i'm super interested in hearing more about the ways that you've stacked things like other than just the sound localization and and helping decrease the sound sensitivity what other things have you found this to be helpful for so we are starting to tap into like some of those other auditory skills such as identifying what you're hearing so like when a bell is playing like okay what kind of bell is this or okay we're going to play this game, but let's talk while you're doing this. So that's more of that multitasking now. So this is different from multisensory. We're still having that multisensory experience, but now we're engaging in multiple tasks at the same time when they're trying to jump back and forth between different things. So, okay, I'm hearing the sound. Let's identify where it is, but okay, let's talk while we're doing this or let's do a little bit of math maybe. Those are for higher functioning patients. Like if they're already like overwhelmed, we we back off. We don't do that. But for some patients, they're like, Sound doesn't bother me at all. So it's like, okay, let's let's uh, strap down. Let's get our uh, hands dirty here. But along with that, like really layered training, we can also learn to ignore sounds. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, when they go to a restaurant, maybe the noise isn't bad, but they can't focus on the person that they're trying to talk to. And yeah. so we'll actually put in crowd noise on the bells and they're going to try and identify the a speaker that has a person talking. Oh, that's right. so cool. Or we could even like play music in the back, like on our laptop in the room as well. And so we just fill the room with noise and they're trying to still identify what they want to focus on. Mm-hmm. Being able to ignore things is just as important as being able to focus on something. Yes. So, so important. That is a skill that can be interrupted with a uh, brain injury for sure. And a lot of other things. <laughs> I feel like that's a, yeah, interesting. I don't know. It just, it reminds me of my, um, my husband and I were driving the other day and he, we had a bunch of kids in the back of the car and they were all singing songs and chatting and being really loud. And we were, I was trying to help him study for, he's doing pilot school and I was trying to help him like go through, like memorize the like in-flight emergency procedures. (laughs) So it was like really like trying to focus really hard with all of this background noise. And it was really interesting because he, our brains work very differently. And for him, when we were like earlier in the day, when we weren't trying to do this, the kids were still talking and, but he was like reading the signs on the road and like thinking about all these different things. And then, and I was, I was paying attention to what the kids were saying and was like entertained by <laughs> their conversation. I was like, did you hear that? That was so funny. <laughs> like, oh, no, I wasn't paying attention at all. But then as soon as we started trying to focus in, he like, he could not ignore the sounds coming from the background. Um, mm. And I think that's, he hasn't been diagnosed. I don't think he's going to be offended that I share this on here, but I think he has ADHD. <laughs> and that's, I think one Uh-oh. of the things that is really challenging with that diagnosis as well is like 
that that discrimination of what to focus on and like being really intentional about that that's a challenge so it was it was funny because at that point again our brains just work so differently but i was like able very i'm very capable of tuning out all children's sounds because i've been surrounded by <laughs> i can tune it all out but for him he was like trying to memorize this thing and every single sentence that the kids said he would like it was really hard for him to not pay attention to that. So it was just, anyway, super interesting. I wonder if something yeah. like that would be helpful for, for ADHD brains as well. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And one thing, so I have two thoughts. One, I have a question. Did you say you do that while you were driving? We were driving and he, yes, I was quizzing him. He was, was, he, was he the driving. driver. He was the driver. So he was like trying to drive oh and then ride. Oh my gosh. So I was like, this is what we do for sex. Actually, he pointed that out. He's like, I think this is what, kind of what you guys do. I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Like on overload. That's a lot. At it once. was a lot. We'll be back practicing in a quiet environment too. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, driving in of itself, that's a lot of visual demand and okay, I'll yes. stop. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I could do that. Maybe I have ADHD. I don't know. But the other thing is I've even noticed one thing is that was really fascinating. I think it's okay for me to share this, but I will preface that this is still a very exploratory therapy. I mean, we've been doing this with patients since like April. So that's May, June, July, August, September, October. So we've been doing it just over six months. We're learning a lot still. One thing I have noticed is I have worked with some patients that have like early dementia and things. They can't tell where sound is coming from. Interesting. Like at all? I mean, one thing is that there's no rhyme or reason to where they think sound is coming from. Every time I train it, it just comes out different each time. And so like there's even more untapped potential with this, but hmm. uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So maybe if you have a loved one or somebody that like they're uh, suspect that they might have like some memory or dementia or something like that some issues going on I'm, be, I'm starting to really be curious if there's anything when it comes to like knowing where sound is or being able to pick up on like in the importance of sound might diminish with age as well I mean once you get older we all know that you can't hear high pitches as well which is why kids can have like really high-pitched ringtones in class and the teacher won't hear it right <laughs> sneaky <laughs> Yeah, it's a real thing. I never did it, but I was very amused when teachers couldn't hear anything. <laughs> really funny. I did not know that. That's really funny. Well, that is, and really interesting. I remember reading something. I I don't know a ton about it, but I remember seeing that there is there is a link between dementia and hearing loss. So that, okay, yeah. That's so that confirms some of my hunches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely more to look into on that. But that's that's super interesting. Yeah. But to kind of segue into this, I wonder, I, I'm curious if you've been kind of itching to ask this question, but we've also noticed that we can do some stuff with smell. Yes, please. Let's talk about that. People are like, what does sound have to do anything with smell? That does not make any sense. When I was told that, I was like, okay, that's just straight up magic and voodoo or somebody <laughs> is just like blowing smoke here. Like, there's no way that could be a thing. Why would smell be related to hearing at all? So going back to that whole neuroanatomy lesson I gave about the brainstem being where some localization happens and like the cranial nerve coming that takes in that balance and hearing information, that's actually really close to the nerve that's involved with our smell, cranial nerve one, the olfactory nerve. Mm -hmm. And Keith is the one that kind of came up with this. Like he talked to 
Dr. Allen and Andy a little bit. He referred to Andy as like the wizard. He Andy's the one of the guys that is certified in the Z Health stuff with like Dr. Cobb that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. But one thing that Heath was like, huh, this auditory nerve, this cranial nerve eight is so close to cranial nerve one. I'm curious that if we activate this auditory nerve enough, if it will kind of have like this local effect and kind of increase blood flow and help that cranial nerve one. Maybe we just need to get some more blood flow and just turn it back on for people that have smell loss. So go back and listen to his podcast. You can hear about this really tough guy shedding a tear or two. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been working on it a little bit and he's not lying. I've, uh, I've worked with about 10 or 12 patients that have lost their smell due to COVID. And the more I've delved into it, there's something there. I've, um, there's more and more I'm learning about it, but in just like a very simple term way to explain it, there are some patients that'll come in, they don't smell a whole lot. I'll have them work with Tomar for one or two minutes where they're just simply looking and pressing buttons, trying to pay attention to where they hear sound. And then right after they're like, they'll have like a essential oil or something. When they bring it to their nose, they're like, whoa. That's like way strong. Like it kind of turns things back on. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. I was just going to ask do you, cause he said on his, like, he was like, I'm three for four. I'd be curious to know what Nate is at. Do you know how many people have been able to get their smell turned back on? Do you know? So there's nuance. I've learned there's a lot of nuance in it. Mm. So there's very specific things that are in place. And depending on what symptoms you present with, That'll actually determine how you're responding. So Heath was really fortunate in that he was working with people that just had smell loss, not, uh, what is the term? Uh, So there's anosmia, which is a loss of smell, but there's also like where your smell is wrong. You can smell things, but the smell is incorrect. I know for taste, it's called dysjuzia. So incorrect taste versus like ajuzia, you can't taste. But one thing is that, With COVID, patients will often present in two categories. One, they've lost all smell. And then the other one is that they can smell some things, but it's incorrect. For people that have anosmia, there's no smell. Or let's say they have a little bit of smell, but the smells are correct. Those are the ones that are like a light switch. It just kind of turns on. And those are the ones where everybody's crying and you're like, wow, this is incredible. I like, I just get goosebumps every time it happens. But for people that have like the incorrect ones, something really interesting goes on in that they, with the training, you can increase the strength. So there's something about Tomar increasing strength of smell, but then you actually have to do smell training to improve accuracy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I'm playing around with that more. There's some theories I have going on, but there's a research article I read not too long ago. And I just kind of read the synopsis of it, but there's technically like over 400 different scents that our brains will register in our nose. Wow. Yeah. And there's like umbrellas of different kinds of smells. So there's like, uh, it's like with taste, there's like five to seven different kinds of taste. There's like bitter, sweet, sour, and there's others. I can't think of them off the top of my head. Oh, umami, which is like that savory. There might be another one that they recently discovered, but with smell, they're trying to categorize them. It's a little bit less com- le- less known, but there's um, fruity, floral. Um, I think the next one is 
leaf or mint kind of flavors. And then kind of like a peppermint. And then um, the last one is spice, like cinnamon or clove. And then there's two others, but they're not as pleasant. There's, uh, I think it's stink and like makes the other one makes me think of like smoke or something but there's like six umbrella classifications of smell and i've been using the four sweet ones so like the flower floral fruity spice and then that oh man like the minty kind of one one yeah yeah and people will actually have different accuracies on each of those interesting yeah it's not the same across the board which I was totally surprised by. Like there are some patients who are like, oh, I can smell the peppermint really well, but I can't smell the rose at all. I mean, if you like looked at research at all with like loss of smell, people are saying like, oh, do like oranges and roses, smell them over and over. I mean, that's going to train those specific receptors in those scents, but there might be others that you're missing out on with such as like clove or cinnamon and things like that. And so I've noticed that with like Tomar in the training, we can kind of snap, turn things on a little bit, but then with like smell kits, you can actually start training specific receptor classifications and try and improve that accuracy as well. Hmm. Very, very cool. Uh, so many things that I never would have even thought of. So that's awesome. The more you're diving into this, the more you're seeing and ways to improve. What are some of the, I'd love to hear some of the success stories that you've heard or like, or that you've experienced or things that, yeah, people have ways that people have improved oh man it was pretty cool there was a there was a few patients where like i was working with them in the early days and it was just like smell turned right on and it was like wow like this is cool and then it took a few days and things progressively got a little better but there was one in particular he was a music teacher and he was one of those people that like each of the different scents had different responses but what was really cool was i was working with him early on and he smelled them and he couldn't really like he could kind of smell them but it was a little hard the strength and accuracy were a little muffled but then we did tomar and then that was the first time that since covid which had been at least a few months i want to say more but i don't want to like over exaggerate here but it had at least been a few months and that was the first time he had smelled rose and he started tearing up like this is like a middle-aged guy. He's like around Thane's age and he just started crying, like tearing up. And I was just like, oh, this is this is special. Like it was a really special moment. I, I don't have a word for it other than just like it was incredible to see. Yeah, it's like those videos that when you see people like I don't know if you've seen these, but people who are colorblind putting on like colored gla like glasses that help them to see color for the first time. And they just like start crying as they look at the world around them. It's like we don't appreciate what the senses that we experience until they're gone. And then when you get it back, I can only imagine such a powerful thing. Like I, you know, I had COVID twice and I lost, like, I just remember feeling like my sense, my, I feel like my hearing and my smell and my taste, everything was muted. And I just remember feeling so, it was so annoying. <laughs> and I like, I can't complain because I know there are people who have it way, way, way worse. <laughs> but uh -huh. even, even the little bit that I experienced, I was like, this is horrible. Like I want to be able, I want to experience sensation and life. I want to smell bad things and I want to be able to enjoy good smells. Like I want, yeah. I want that variety and that juxtaposition. Like it, it is important, I think for our, our life experience and our brains. It's just, yeah, I, I can only imagine what a beautiful and powerful thing it would be to have lost that and get it back again. That's 
really cool. Yeah. Another nerd out moment here. Fun fact, the nose. So most information goes through that thing called the thalamus. What I mentioned earlier, it helps you stay asleep, helps inhibit information doesn't need to get to the rest of the brain. Smell information actually goes right around that, which is why when people are like passed out and they'll put like a really stinky thing up to their nose and it helps them like wake back up if they're like get knocked out or something. It's because it bypasses that and that it actually is tied very strongly into our emotions. Mm. Yeah, even auditory information, it goes right along next side the hippocampus, which is a memory center and is part of like the limbic and emotional system. And so there's a lot of emotions stored up within smell and hearing. And yeah. so to be able to, to have lost any sense of that can be a very emotional experience for sure. Yeah. Oh, that is super, super interesting. And that reminds me of one of the the tricks that we like to share with people for memory is like, because those are so closely tied memory and smell memory and well, yeah, we'll go with um, smell for now, but you can, if you are studying a certain topic, like if you're in a math class, every time you study your math assignments, if you smell a certain smell and then you go to take your test and you smell that smell again, it can help to like wake up those. Oh yeah, that's cool. I mean, it makes sense. Here's a little side tangent, personal experience. I was, uh, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts while my dad was going to school out there. And we lived in like this uh, condo. It was like on the third floor. It was red brick. I can still remember all of it. And we went back and visited it in 2017, I think. It was like right around the time I actually came through treatment at CFX. We went back and visited that very same apartment and the door smelled the same. (laughs) I remember like all these memories came back. I was like, oh my gosh, like all these things flooded back. I'm like, I remember the smell, like all these things came and I was like, oh my gosh. There really is something to like memory and smell for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really cool. (laughs) I love that. So I'm curious about if there's a certain amount of time that you've seen people need to be exposed to this to see progress or is it, I imagine it's probably very individualized, but any patterns that you've noticed? So that brings up a good point that I want to kind of hit on as well is when it comes to like training, it uh, smell can be overtrained. There's a thing called, uh, I think, adaptation. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but there's this, uh, oh, habituation. There we go. Smell habituation. If you walk into your grandma's house, it's like, boom, perfume everywhere. Like you can, like, this is grandma's house. I can smell it. It just hits you like a ton of bricks. After 15 minutes, you don't smell it anymore. Mm-hmm. So there is a thing is smell habituation. You, you can't, uh, there's like a smaller window for smell training. And you can actually buy smell training kits on Amazon and they give decent advice in terms of just like the basics of like working on accuracy and getting your brain more tuned in. We do that more aggressive approach where we can like use Tomar and do some other little tricks up our sleeve, which I'll, uh, I won't share here, but um, the people that have anosmia who just like the smell is gone entirely due to COVID or it's like accurate, but really muffled. I only need like 10 minutes, 15 minutes with them and boom, it's there. That's amazing. Yeah. And then with the people with like, where it's inaccurate, that one, that one's more of like, you need to train it over a few weeks. And with time, there's actually research where people do just the basics of just introducing them to different smells and they do mindfulness with it, like visualizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, The smell training has research proven that it actually will help. 
Oh, that's so cool. And good to know for people who may not be able to <laughs> make it to CFX, like there is still like they can do other things. So that's good to know. Oh, how about with just the decreasing that noise sensitivity or the other issues that are involved with what's hearing? Oh, yeah. So I've been trying to do some more longitudinal or follow-up surveys and things. Um, I don't get as many back, but I've heard a lot of success stories of people saying that like their noise sensitivity has improved a lot. In my opinion, I think noise sensitivity, if it's due to localization, that takes a little bit, takes a few weeks, maybe a few months of doing like five, 10 minutes a day of very intentional training. And if you want to, we can even talk about some like basic ideas on how to train this at home. That was going to be my next question, but keep going. Okay, perfect. But, uh, and then noise tolerance, I think, can be a little bit of the same way. It's more of like a gradual process in that way. Do you usually see progress with people in that time that you're working with them while they're at CFX? Yeah, yeah. So we typically see people for a week or two, and they'll get two sessions with Tomar during that week amongst all the other things that they're doing to work their brain in crazy ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, so there's a scoring system that I have and I'll, I'll kind of spare you the numbers, but the idea is that the board is about arm's length away and each grading scale is about, I can't remember if it was two and a half or three and a half inches. So like, depending on how far away they are, I give them a numerical value, the further away they are, the worse or the larger their score is. And um, it gets averaged at the end. And I'll say that for most patients that I've done it with, everybody improves. Or I would say not everybody, at least 75% of patients are improving uh, significantly. So it's meaning, not just like... They're, they're able not, to stay further back and still be accurate? Is that... Or it's that they're when a speaker's playing, they're pointing closer and closer to the speaker that is playing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like instead of like that top versus bottom confusion, they're actually pointing to the bottom when it's playing at the bottom or they're pointing to the speaker right on instead of off to the right a little bit. And um, I actually did a little bit of math one time. And if uh, patients were improving their score by a certain amount, like if they were improving by the average I was seeing, if you take into account how much the arms are moving over the course of the two minutes, if you average that out over the whole course of the day with the different sounds they're hearing, that's the equivalent of almost two football fields worth of less movement they had to make. Wow. So, I mean, that's just kind of speaks to also like if your brain has minor errors, it shouldn't seem like a big deal. But if you're dealing with those minor errors in everything you do that you get all day, that's going to add up in terms of how much more work you have to do. It's like the idea like, oh, I can hold my arm out for a few minutes, but if I have to do it over the whole course of the day. My arm is going to kill. I'm going to be sore. I'm going to protest this so much. Hearing is like that. Vision is like that. If there are these minor errors that are not stark, but if you're dealing with them all the time, that's going to add up and that's going to be just as overwhelming and just as taxing as if you had like a very acute Mm-hmm. like nasty headache or for something like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, and when you say less arm movement, that means they're, they're accurate the first time when they go to like point at it. It's like, they're not having to go back and forth trying to determine where they're pointing. Yeah. So like, for example, like 
people can't see us talking right here, but if you imagine your nose is where the speaker is, people will sometimes point to like where my hair is or the chin is or to where the ears, or even some people will go down to like the belly button. (laughs) But, and the idea is that their finger on the retest on the speakers that are an issue, they're getting closer and closer to where the nose is or where that speaker is. They're pointing Mm -hmm. right at it versus off to the side. And so that's less work for your brain to try and make that correction. It doesn't have to make up as much distance. So like when you're going throughout your day to day, if you're constantly hearing a noise and you need to know where it is, you're going to look at it usually, right? So like if somebody says, hey, Bethany, first thing you do, you look, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can look straight at it. That is far less work and effort your brain has to put into, into that specific moment. But we're dealing with noise all day, every day. And so if we can know exactly where noise is, that is far less work our brain has to do over the accumulation of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's so cool. And it's, and like you said, it's localizing things. If it knows that it's accurate where it's, where it's thinking things are coming from, then it, that decreases that threat response. So super cool. So what are some things that people could do at home if they don't have an amazing Tomar device and an awesome therapist like Nate (laughs) to help them with it? What other things could people work on? Uh, first, talk to Bethany. She's an amazing therapist. <laughs> I would say the biggest, uh, and or sorry, not biggest, one of the easiest ways you can do it is get somebody with you. And what they'll do is that you'll perhaps be sitting or standing. And what you'll do is that with your eyes closed, your friend will snap somewhere around you, preferably about arm's length away to get started. And when they snap or click a pen or a dog clicker, whatever that sound is, or even a clap, your goal is to then point with your eyes still closed to where you think it is. And then you open to see how close you are. And my standard is that you want to be about one fist within where it was. So like if I snap, I have my hands together and I kind of make a circle around that. So it's about like two or three inches roughly. And after you point, you open to see how close you are. And you can do that with like in a square in front of you, behind you, and then on the sides, above your ears, at your ears and below your ears. And then as you get better, then you can start being a little more tricky about like, okay, I'm going to do it in this really like left down to like a few inches off to the side, not in the center and see if you can still identify where it is. So that's like a basic a localization practice where somebody makes a sound and you point to where you think it is. If you don't have somebody with you, in my opinion, you can just make the sound yourself. And that will actually help train with your proprioception that you know where your arm is, you know where the sound is. And so you can just like, okay, this is where I hear the sound, right? And one thing, a little trick I've learned is that sometimes the brain, if it doesn't know where a sound is, have a comparison sound that you do know where it is. So like have two sounds about like a six inches to 12 inches apart and make a sound alternating. So like here's one sound, here's the other. And then your brain can learn to kind of compare those sounds and have that as a reference. Mm, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Another important point I think is that you want to have your the partner who's helping you, someone who's trustworthy and not a obnoxious fourteen year old or something who like yeah, move their hand and pretend like it wasn't there. <laughs> oh yeah, that's yeah. No, that's gonna just no. Yeah, don't do that. Your brain <laughs> needs to learn to trust something before it'll actually get better at it. That's true. I'm. I'm yeah, just and then, I imagine people are gonna use 
people who will be trustworthy. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> yeah. And then, so that's localization. That's a big thing. Um, the next layer to that is adding in background noise. So as you're getting better at knowing where sound is, add in some noise in the room, like play some music, go to a place where maybe like a park or a restaurant where there's a little more sound. You don't necessarily have to do like specific, like, okay, I'm going to close my eyes while I'm at like McDonald's or something or like at Olive Garden. But <laughs> what you can do is that once you're in like a restaurant or something like that, identify specific sounds in that environment and make sure you're extremely confident that you know it's there. One thing I'll have patients do is that while I'm in Tomar, there's actually an HVAC system. There's like three or four different vents in the room. And I'll say, okay, where do you hear this ventilation sound? And they'll go on a stand underneath one of the vents. It's like, it's right here. I'm like, are you sure? Walk around a little more. And they're like, oh, there's multiple, right? And so when you go to these noisy environments, work on being able to really identify where a specific sound is. So like if somebody's chewing, which person's chewing? If somebody's talking, who is talking? Be certain that you're doing that. And then you're also dealing with just overall noise. If you can't be in a, an environment like that, then you can just focus on simply stand, just being there for a few minutes and then leave, right? Mm -hmm. But there are little things you can do to progressively and slowly introduce yourself to something that your brain might not like. And then make sure you pull yourself out without overwhelming yourself too quickly. Mm, Reestablish that safety. Yeah, I love that. Um, those are those are great, um, very uh, doable things that people could do at home or if they're going out. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want us to know about Tomar or how people can hack their brain, <laughs> hack their auditory system here? Things to things. To um, that's a. I mean. I like this whole point of just allowing your brain to have time to get to a safe place. So I'm a big advocate for explaining what you can do to calm certain systems down. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to auditory information, just having some quiet time uh, right after you do some intentional exposure to noise is really helpful. So earplugs, noise canceling headphones, or just earmuffs, those are nice ways to just kind of bring that system down. I also like to do a lot of relaxation techniques. I know, Bethany, you probably know so many out there, but one thing that is a great way to kind of calm that system down is just to close your eyes. And when you're breathing, just make sure your exhale is a little slower than it's normally going. So, and do it with all with your nose. If it's not plugged, like mine is half of the time. <laughs> so in this case, like if you're usually breathe out for like three or four seconds, just let it go out for four or five, meaning just a little slower. And that will have a more calming effect on the body. Yeah. Yeah. I love, love that point that when you do these intentional workouts, trying to stress the system, that it is really important to, to give it a break afterwards and let it. And I think sometimes, <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I tend to be like, let's not use all of the headphones. Let's like, let's not we want to give the system a chance to improve. And if you're always covering up, then you don't get that chance, but it is important to be able to, <laughs> to, to retreat if you need to, and to uh, yeah. that break time as well. So there's, it's a balance, right? Like mm -hmm. we want to stress it a little bit and then we definitely want to baby it <laughs> and let it, mm -hmm. let it come back down, calm down and yeah, let it know that you're taking care of it. So that's an extra sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sharing this. This is fascinating stuff. And again, it's 
novel. <laughs> it's new. Like I don't, I don't know if anybody else doing this and it's very, very cool. So thanks for all that you've done with this. And I'm sure that the patients who've worked with you are so grateful as well for the, the things that you're discovering and the ways that you're helping. So thanks. Yeah, I'm grateful for everybody that has subjected themselves to doing really weird th- things and being able to see some good come from it. Wow. So cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Bethany. Always an honor and pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you listened in today. I hope you've gained some helpful insights and inspiration regarding dealing with and recovering from concussions. My goal is to create more awareness and education about concussions and the fact that there is so much that can be done to improve life after someone has had one. Help me spread the message by liking, commenting, rating, and subscribing to this podcast and share it with others who would benefit from hearing it. There are more resources available on my website. And again, if you or someone you love would benefit from concussion coaching, sign up for a free consultation using the link in the show notes or at my website, www.theconcussioncoach.com. Thank you. See you next time and take good care of that amazing brain of yours.